Good morning, beloved of God. We'll be reading from the New Testament, the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And it's in your Bible on page 1288. First, let's pray. Holy Father, as St. Paul prayed to the church at Ephesus, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, we pray now that the Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and minds through this reading of your Holy Word and Howard's message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Amen. Thank you, Anne. I want to look again at that last verse. It's kind of a tough one, James 1, 15. Let's look at that together. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Those are tough words. Does every sin bring forth death? I mean, I've heard of the seven deadly sins, you know, pride, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, greed, uh, lots of different sins. Those seven sins, uh, did I miss one? Sloth, that's the seventh one. I don't have to struggle with sloth. I'm a pretty busy guy, but sloth's the seventh of the deadly sins. We define those as the seven deadly sins, but does every sin lead to death, as James explains in chapter 1, verse 15? Well, if you go back to the very beginning, specifically to Genesis chapter 3, when the original sin was committed of our first parents, Adam and Eve, you remember the story. Adam and Eve were in, the, were they were, they were in paradise, the Garden of Eden, and they were told by God that they could eat from any tree, but not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, like a little child, you tell them not to go into that room. What is the one room they wanted to go into? the one that was condemned. And so, attempted by the slithery sly serpent, being told that they could be like God if they ate from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they wanted to be like God in their pride, and so they, they committed that original sin. They rebelled against God. And as you read, all of creation was corrupted and they were cast out of the garden and death came into the world. And we have now inherited a, well, a sinful nature, inherited from our first parents, that a sinful nature that left our own is prone to wander from God. We are, we are prone to stray, to, to rebel. Yes, all sin ultimately, it leads to death, does it not? As we continue our journey looking at the life of King David, you'll see that David committed a sin so heinous that it, well, it led to the death of, of multiple people, a sin that... Uh, haunted him the rest of his days. Now, if you've been with us uh, these last several weeks, you know that we have been taking a journey looking at the life of David, who is described in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. 
And up to this point, David has been a very noble character. And in 1 Samuel 16, you know, he's the eighth son. He's the youngest son of the son of Jesse. He was outside of anyone's conception of who God might want to anoint as the next king. I mean, seven is the number of wholeness, and David was outside of that. He was the eighth son, herding his father's sheep. But God, in his infinite wisdom, could see into David's heart, and, and so he chose to anoint this young shepherd boy, David, when he was just a teenage boy. And this teenage boy, with great courage by the Spirit of God, ultimately defeats giant Goliath in a battle with just a, sl- a stone and a slingshot. And as we continue to read the stories, we can see that, well, David maintains his integrity for the people celebrate David's victory, and, and they also celebrate King Saul's victory. And they say of King Saul, he kills his thousands, but David has ki- killed his tens of thousands. And so, of course, King Saul becomes jealous of this young David, and he tries to kill David multiple times. David escapes, and David is given, given opportunities even to kill King Saul, but in his integrity, he does not want to hurt or harm or kill God's anointed. And King Saul was the first anointed king of Israel. As we continue the story, you remember we talked about how David's best friend was Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and they they make a covenant bond to one another. And and ultimately, last week we talked about the fact that after King Saul and and Jonathan uh, die, then David has an opportunity to to make good on his pledge to, to show kindness, covenant kindness, hesed, God's steadfast love to Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. It's up to this point in our story, we can see that David has been a man of, char- of great character, of great integrity, someone we should seek to, to model ourselves after. And if you've missed any of the sermons, you can go to our webpage and you can see the messages we've talked about David. There are 66 chapters in the Old Testament that speak of King David. We've only looked at six so far. And on the seventh week, when we look at a moment where David really stumbled, he fell. And David's sin, it led to the death of several other people. Yes, our sin has consequences, does it not? You remember the story. It's found actually in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We read this. In the spring of the year, the times when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. It's interesting here. David sent Joab. That's not his normal pattern. Normally, David would go with Joab, his lead general, and he would go with the men, and he would fight with the men. David was a servant leader up to this point, but in 2 Samuel 11, chapter 1, David sends Joab and his troops to let them do the fighting for him. And while David stays at home, he is on his, he's in his palace, and he looks at the, over his, the rooftops of Jerusalem one late afternoon, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing now named Bathsheba, and David sees her, and he wants her, and so he inquires about her. And listen to this description that is given about Bathsheba. The servant of David says, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, the servant could have easily said, well, David, that's Bathsheba, but he gives a description about her being the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, because this servant knows that while David is often noble, he's a man with great great sexual appetite, for he now has seven wives, David does, and he knows what David's thinking. He wants Bathsheba for himself, and so this servant warns him, this is not just any woman, this is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. David, this is not a a woman that you should lust after or call for. But David doesn't seem to care, does he? He sees what he wants, and he takes it. 
and he invites Bathsheba into his palace. They uh, commit adultery, and ultimately, she becomes pregnant. Now, for David, this was supposed to be just a one-night stand, but word gets back to him that Bathsheba is now pregnant, and so he's, he's in a panic. He's got to find a way to, to cover his son because, well, her husband Uriah is out with the rest of the troops fighting, and if David had been doing what he was supposed to be doing, this sin would have never taken place. But David, during the season of the year when kings go out to battle, David stayed at home, and the idle hands are off in the devil's workshop. So David has committed egregious sin here, but he he has an idea. I know I'll cover this up. I'll invite Uriah off the battlefield to come and give me a report in the city of Jerusalem, and and Uriah, by his normal nature, will go home and and lie with his wife, and then then Uriah will think that the baby in Bathsheba's womb is his, and so no one will know, and, and he'll be fine. But Uriah the Hittite proves to be more noble than David, the king of Israel, Because Uriah the Hittite says, how can I sleep with my wife when all of my other fellow soldiers are out sleeping on the battlefield? I cannot do such a thing, O king. David decides to try and get Uriah drunk, thinking that now that Uriah is drunk, surely he'll go back home to his wife. But Uriah, even in his drunkenness, the Hittite, proves to be more noble than David, the king of Israel. Uriah refuses to go home. And so David decides what he's going to do is he's going to send Uriah out into the battle and and instruct Joab, the general, to make sure that Uriah is at the front of the lines and to make sure that Uriah is ultimately killed in battle. Ironically, as you read the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he has Uriah carry the message to Joab. Uriah carries his own death sentence to Joab, the general. Joab does what he's instructed to do. He puts Uriah at the front of the battle lines, then he withdraws so that Uriah is killed in battle. Word gets back to David in Jerusalem that Uriah is now dead. Bathsheba is grieving, but David decides to comfort her by, by marrying her so that, well, that her pregnancy will not be in shame. And David believes that he's covered his sin and no one is any of the wiser, that all that he's done has been covered and taken care of. He doesn't think anyone really has seen what he's done. But God sees everything, doesn't he? And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, the very last phrase of that chapter, we read, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done, coveting another man's wife, lusting after her, committing adultery, and then murdering her husband, the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. The Lord decides to send Nathan the prophet to speak to David about his sin. To see what Nathan had to say to David, I would encourage you to open your Red Pew Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It may be found on page 334 of your Red Pew Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and, and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Oh God, this is a powerful story of another man's sin. So Lord, in all humility, we come to this text and we pray that you might speak to us, recognizing that we're all sinners in need of your grace, in need of your forgiveness and mercy. Oh God, help us to see what you want us to see and help us to hear what you want us to hear and help our hearts to be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts 
be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, listen to the word of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, and with his children, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I want to pause there just for a moment. The word took that we find in verse 4, he took the poor man's lamb, is the very same word that is used in 1 Samuel chapter 11 to speak of how David took Bathsheba. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verse, uh, right here, verse 4, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of the Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And then she returned to her own house. David took Bathsheba, just as this wealthy man takes the little ewe lamb from one of, uh, from, from the servant's home. He took the poor man's lamb. Listen to David's response to this story told by Nathan. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Isn't that just a little bit ironic? David is so upset about this story about a master who took a a little ewe lamb from his poor servant that he he gets upset and he says he must pay back four times that which he stole, which actually the Mosaic law only required you to to return what you was stolen plus a fifth. This is four times what was normally required. Yes, David is very quick to judge the sin of another until Nathan helps him see that he is the man. Listen to David's response, to, uh, to Nathan's response to David's judgment. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in sight of the sun For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Every time I hear that text, Nathan says to David, you are the man. 
Now, when I played basketball in high school, uh, every now and then, my, my specialty was uh, three-pointers, shooting uh, baskets from far distance, and that's, I broke my finger actually playing basketball. That's why I've got this blue bandage. But anyway, uh, and when I played in high school basketball, uh, we would often say to each other, you know, if you hit a big shot, like, hey, you the man. That was a compliment. That's not what's going on here. He is very upset. He's like, the man that you're upset with, this, this story, this parable I've told about this, this poor servant who has his ewe lamb taken by this rich man, you're the man, you're the rich man who took from his servant, Uriah the Hittite. You are the man. You know, I imagine that uh, Nathan could come to any one of our homes and tell us a parable about our sin. And he would look us in the eyes and say, you're the man or you're the woman. And what would we say in response? Notice David's response to Nathan's condemnation. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Can we say that together? I have sinned against the Lord. That is the truth of Scripture. That is the truth of our lives. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's before the holiness of Christ. We are all found found to to be wanting, found to fall short. There are things we, we shouldn't do that we have done, and there's things we ought to do that we fail to do. Yes, we're all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. And when we confess our sins, we humbly recognize our need for God's forgiveness. It reminds me, uh, many years ago, when my son was just a little boy, uh, we had kind of a rule in our house that you could only have two cookies for dessert. One time, John got the cookies, and he was distributing them to everyone, and he decided to, to feed himself at the end, and he took four cookies as he put the cookies away. And he was burdened by the guilt of eating those four cookies, knowing you're only supposed to have two cookies. Eventually, he came to uh, my wife, Sarah, and said, Mom, I got to tell you, I have to be honest with you, I did a bad thing. I took four cookies instead of two. Well, Sarah was so grateful that he had the conscience to know I, I should have done this, that he came forward. I wonder how much our Heavenly Father must appreciate it when we come to him in humble confession. Rather than waiting for God to bring the prophet Nathan to us or the prophet Samuel, we come and we confess our sins to Almighty God. Because the truth is, confession is, it's good for the soul. It frees us from the burden of guilt. David experienced this burden. While things may have seemed fine, we actually know that they weren't. For he writes in Psalm 32, Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5, I'll just read those first five verses. David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When David was silent and failed to confess his sins, his bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When was the last time you spent some considerable time really praying about and confessing your sins? When was the last time you really humbly came before the Lord and said, Lord, I I need to confess to you. I I recognize that there's a a sin, a a hidden sin, or a besetting sin that continues to, to plague me. One of the great spiritual practices in, in, uh, in the history of the church is called the prayer of examine, where at the end of the day, as you were about to go to bed, you, you kind of ask the Lord to reveal to you 
where he was working in your life. And as a part of that prayer of examine, you actually ask God to reveal to you where you may have sinned, where you failed to do what you should have done, or where you didn't, you did something you should not have done. When was the last time you really took some time just to, to pray? Because the big difference between King David and the King Saul is that when King Saul is confronted with his sin by the prophet Samuel, King Saul gives an excuse. But when King David is confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, he gives a confession. When we sin, do we give an excuse or do we give a confession? Because ultimately, it's the confession of our sin that's going to lead to freedom. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him. And he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they they sent food for him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, And went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Notice in verse 20. That after confessing his sin, Nathan tells him that, you know, your sin will have consequences. And the consequence of his sin is that ultimately the, the son who was born to he and Bathsheba is going to die. And so David pours out his heart to God and, and he humbly confesses his sin to God and he pleads with God and he fasts that God might spare his son born out of this adulterous affair. In fact, scholars tell us that in the midst of his pain, in the midst of this confession, in the midst of this grief, David wrote Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 6. I just want to read the first six verses of that text. We read in Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Confession allows us to have truth in the inward being. Taking time to humbly recognize our sins before God and to confess our sins to God allows us to have truth in the inward parts. It allows us to be people of integrity. Yes, we need to confess our sins to God. And as James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that we should also confess our sins to one another. For in James 5, verse 16, we read that, well, that we should confess our sins to one another for the prayer of a righteous man is, is powerful and effective. When was the last time you not only confessed your sins to God, but confessed your sins to a trusted brother or sister in Christ so that they might pray for you? You know, if you have a besetting sin, a sin that you find you tend to repeat over and over and over again, the best thing is not only to confess that to God, but actually to, to find a, a brother or sister in Christ that you could humbly confess that sin to and say, could you pray for me? I struggle with this besetting sin. I remember in college, uh, I did this for the very first time, uh, working with my college director and his mentor, a guy named Baker Duncan, and it transformed my life to, to sit there humbly and, and to confess my sins before these men and, and to seek their prayer. I felt like a load was taken off my shoulders that I could really be a, a person of integrity, that yes, I, I know I'm not perfect, and in all humility, I confess my sins to God, but I also seek the supplication, the prayers of others to pray for me so that I might move beyond this besetting sin. Yes, confession is powerful. It frees our soul. It helps us experience the forgiveness of God, and it helps us become people of forgiveness. You know, if we don't confess our sins, we will find ourselves feeling ever lonely, ever separated from God and community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who wrote a beautiful book called Life Together. It's not very long, but he wrote it while he was leading a confessing uh, church. Actually, it was a confessing uh, seminary, part of the confessing church movement in, in Germany that was rebelling against Hitler and his Nazi uh, uh, teachings. And he wrote in his book, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. If you have unconfessed sin, sin you have not confessed to God, or, or the kind of besetting sin that you've never confessed to a neighbor, you will feel utterly alone as if you can't really be in community because you're not your true self. You're not freed from your sins. Yes, confession and repentance and worship ultimately bring new life. Notice again in verse 20 of our text, it says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed him, Self and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. After confessing his sins to God, after repenting, after writing Psalm 51, after pouring his heart out to God and experiencing God's forgiveness, he, he saw, though, that even though he was confessing and even though he was repentant, there were still consequences to his sin. And God exacted the punishment for his sin on his young baby boy. And when he saw that it happened, then he arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he worshiped the Lord. You know, as we look at the cross of Christ, 
we can see that God has exacted the punishment for our sins on his one and only son, Jesus. For Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our heavenly father. And then Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross so that our sins might be atoned for once and for all so that we might know that God doesn't just love us this much, he loves us this much. And as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Our sins have been atoned for. Is if we will come to God with regular confession of our sins, we will experience his grace and mercy and we'll be reminded of just how much God loves us. And then we'll be able to share that love with others. As we continue to read our text, we can see that, well, well, David's confession, repentance, and worship, it ultimately led to new life, did it not? For out of this broken relationship, when David confessed his sins and he repented from his sins and he, and he worshiped God after, after his sins had been punished for, then God blessed David and Bathsheba with a little boy named Solomon who would later be described as the wisest king in the history of Israel. And to learn more about King Solomon, I would encourage you to join us two weeks as we begin a new sermon series on the life of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon so we might live our life making good choices, knowing that life is full of choices and we want to choose wisely. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, as we look at this text and the story of David, we see that he was a fallen and broken man just like we are. We may not have committed the sin of, a, of adultery or murder, but Lord, we're all guilty of sin. And Lord, we can see that David is an example of what it means to walk with you because rather than giving an excuse like King Saul did, he gave a confession. So Lord, in the quietness of this moment, we confess our sins to you. And Lord, as we confess our sins to you, we're reminded that you have already exacted the punishment for our sins with the death of your son.